Right, uh, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to another stupendous Middle East Centre public event, uh, which we're all very lucky to be at. If you could turn your mobile phones off, I won't have to shout at you in the next hour and a half when they ring. Um, I am uh, very happy and excited, actually, to welcome Dr. Toby Matheson, Matheson from the University of Oxford, uh, to talk about the other Saudis, Shiism, dissent and sectarianism. The reason I'm very excited is that this book has been long rumoured to be arriving. I've, I've heard its arguments, I've, uh, I've seen the author talk about it, and then finally it's here in my hand, and for the bargain price of 15.99 at the end of the lecture. But don't rush forward yet. Let's see the quality of the lecture. If he, if he wows you, then you can come and buy a copy. Uh, but Toby is an old friend uh, and a senior research fellow in the international relations of the Middle East at St Anthony's College, University of Oxford. Uh, previously, there's a lot of stuff it says here, but most importantly, he was a fellow at the Kuwait program. Was he not? Were you not? Yanni. Yeah, see, it's, it's, uh, so uh, that's where he learned everything in, in this book. Um, the rest of his life was merely... Anyway, so uh, Toby will speak for about... 45 minutes, you think, uh, on the book, persuading you to buy it, but more importantly, putting, I think, this really rich and very interesting research in a, its wider significance about Saudi Arabia and what we could boldly describe as the, the new Cold War in, in the Gulf. So, Toby, take it away. Well, Toby, thank you very much for uh, having me. It's uh, great to have such a um, good host. And thanks uh, to the Middle East Center for, for uh, organizing this lecture and to all of you for coming. And I'm grateful to be put in a slightly bigger room than the last few lectures um, where people had to queue outside. So this is great. And um, courtesy of Cambridge University Press, the book is out in 2015. Slight footnote on something Toby said. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the editor of, of CUP is also here and, and we'll, we'll sell that later and perhaps tell you a bit more about the series and whatever you want to know. And prospective authors, I suppose, can pitch their ideas to her, um, I think. Anyway, um, thank you all for coming. Um, today I'll be talking about um, what was originally my PhD and which is now being transformed into this um, book um, and it dealt with um, the history of uh, the eastern province of Saudi Arabia more broadly and specifically with the political movements um, that have uh, emerged in that part of the Arabian Peninsula uh, since the late 19th century but particularly since the mid 20th century with the emergence of the oil industry um, and so on and so forth and um, Perhaps the turnout also suggests that uh, in recent days and weeks uh, this issue has yet again become uh, of an issue of kind of public interest and um, has also become you know very prominent in the news again and um, uh, I've throughout the kind of ten years that I've dealt with this I've seen this uh, periodically you know you know uh, becoming a very uh, hot topic and then people forgetting uh, uh, again for a few years. Um, that this region exists and uh, that you know people are being treated the way they are there, but then suddenly something happens again, and it's um, at the forefront of, of everyone's mind. And it now even has become, you know, with the, with these kind of looming executions of a number of activists um, in in the eastern province, has become an issue of uh, even domestic politics in Britain. Um, quite fun to watch, I think. 
um, and uh, an issue in Saudi-British uh, relations. Um, and um, on the other hand, um, obviously the Shia in the eastern province and now also in the south of uh, uh, Saudi Arabia have uh, become victims of attacks by um, uh, uh, fighters of the Islamic State. So um, two big reasons uh, for this to be a kind of current, uh, well, a kind of important um, topic. But you will excuse me if I go back in history a little bit, because most of the talk will be um, about, you know, the kind of the history of this issue. Um, and only at the end will I kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, elaborate a bit on, on these kind of current um, dynamics. So what the book really tries to do, and what I try to show in, you know, in some of my other work as well, was that, um, you know, seeing a lot of the kind of core states in the Middle East as monoliths um, is problematic. Um, and therefore, for example, uh, you know, studying the international relations of the Middle East based on kind of a, uh, an abstract view of the state as a kind of monolith that projects one form of nationalism or one form of identity abroad is problematic. And, the same, and this is particularly also true for Saudi Arabia, which is usually portrayed as uh, just a uh, Sunni and, and Wahhabi uh, country that uh, sponsors this ideology abroad and, and nothing else. Um, so basically, you know, what I've kind of also uncovered in my research is that there is a huge um, religious diversity in the country. Uh, there is a huge diversity of uh, political views, um, even. Um, there are uh, differences between the different regions as to, you know, how they view their role in the history of the country and how they um, uh, see their future. And um, there are actually a lot of um, kind of uh, groups, religious groups, that um, would not be uh, seen as pure by, in, according to an orthodox um, Wahhabi uh, um, uh, religious scholar. Um, and they are actually all across the country. So the Shia, in the, the 12 Shia in the eastern province that I'm going to be talking about today are um, just one such group. And all these um, religious groups share um, a kind of problematic relationship with the Wahhabi clergy. Because um, you know, when the kind of um, uh, the movement uh, uh, was founded by Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab in the mid 18th century, his main aim was to purify um, Islam and purify the Arabian Peninsula um, from people who were not um, practicing Islam uh, according to the way in which he wanted it to be practiced. Um, now, I'm not going to go into very much detail here. You can read about this um, elsewhere. But um, suffice it to say that um, it is probably legitimate to make a connection between some of these ideas and what is being um, uh, carried out at the moment. Um, so you have had for um, two and a half centuries polemics directed at um, uh, some of these groups, particularly in the eastern province, but also the Ismailis in Nadran. Um, and for example, also there's a 12 Shia community in Medina, um, which has been there for a long time. So you have polemics directed at these people, and in fact some of the early kind of conquests of the Saudi Wahhabi alliance um, were directed um, against these territories, and particularly, I mean, against the eastern province. And um, very harsh um, measures have been adopted um, at the time of these conquests. There were several conquests in the 18th, 19th, and then 20th century uh, against uh, the kind of local in inhabitants. You know, seen from a religious perspective. 
Um, on the political level, uh, people who cooperated obviously um, were fine and, and, and were integrated into the local, into the elites at the local level. But on the religious level, I think there was a problem, and that problem has never really been uh, solved and is really um, kind of underlying um, all the, you know, almost all the problems that have emerged um, uh, in this region um, ever since. So today I'll be speaking about the Eastern Province, as I mentioned, where today there are between 2 and 3 million um, 12 Shia, um, which makes them around 10 to 15 percent of the citizen population. Now these are obviously contested figures. There are no census that um, detail uh, sectarian or, or religious belonging um, in Saudi Arabia, but um, these are um, uh, my best um, estimates. And um, just uh, this is a map um, of, of the eastern province and kind of the areas um, uh, where uh, some of these Shia live. Um, <clears throat> mainly, um, they center around uh, two big oasis towns. Uh, one is Fufuf um, in, in the Al-Aqsa oasis, um, and the other is uh, Katif, which is a port town um, on, the, on, the, on the Gulf. And Fufuf um, <coughs> had been kind of the old administrative center of that eastern region of the Arabian Peninsula uh, for centuries. So this was, for example, where the Ottomans had their, um, their governor. So here you see on the left, you see a kind of Ottoman fort. Um, you know. um, so it's been kind of the old administrative center, so it was the center you know, of the business elites, um, and so on and so forth. And only in the 50s was the, the, the capital of the eastern province moved um, um, uh, to Dammam, and um, uh, you know there are allegations that this was partly being done to you know obviously the new oil uh, company complexes and everything um, were were uh, centered uh, closer to the to the Gulf Coast. Um, if we go back here, oh, the Dammam is not in here. Anyway, um, but on the other hand, it was also a way of taking the new kind of capital away from the older settlements um, and away from some of the uh, Shia settlements. Um, so. Hufuf um, had been in a kind of steps of, of decline um, ever since and lost its importance as the political and economic um, capital um, of the eastern province. So this is one of the reasons, you know, I mean, away from religion, um, that leads to a certain amount of dissatisfaction um, in, in that part of the uh, Arabian Peninsula. These are some old pictures uh, of the eastern province. Uh, obviously, it doesn't look um, this way anymore. A lot of the groundwater and so on um, has uh, disappeared, um, particularly because of the um, oil industry and, and, and other kind of industrial um, and agricultural developments, a problem that is um, uh, uh, obviously common to, to many areas um, in the region, but, the, but that is also often mentioned, um, uh, you see, by by kind of um, uh, local inhabitants and um, dissidents. These are pictures of the other um, key city that I'm talking about, Katif. Um, in, in fact, Katif has been kind of the center of most of the political movements um, there for, I mean, in the eastern province and in, in fact in all of Saudi Arabia to a certain extent um, over the last um, uh, century or so. And um, there was an old city, as you can see, an old kind of um, Islamic um, Arabian uh, city, um, and um, the center of this uh, old city was demolished in 1979 after an uprising broke out um, led by the by the local inhabitants, um, and uh, 
was demolished and turned into a car park with a Sunni mosque in the middle. So this is one of the kind of symbolic um, responses that the state has um, carried out um, against um, uh, uh, signs of dissent um, uh, from that part of the world. Now this is uh, a, an image of an early Ashura procession in the eastern province, probably sometime in the 1950s, um, uh, around Katif. Um, now, it might be important to note that because of um, the, the, the kind of influence of the Wahhabi clergy on, um, on religious affairs and education in Saudi Arabia, practices that are not seen as orthodox um, by the Wahhabi clergy um, are generally not allowed. So uh, many of the Shia um, rituals, such as uh, Ashura and, and Muharram rituals, are seen as um, uh, uh, deviant and are therefore banned. So every year, I mean, uh, since, you know, throughout the 20th century, um, on the occasion of these, um, you know, when these rituals, when, when the Muharram uh, month comes, there have been tensions um, in the eastern province, and uh, people went out with banners and so on and so forth, and then the police would come and, um, uh, and um, well, arrest people and, and stop these um, things. Um, but um, uh, this only really changed under King Abdullah, something that I will get um, to uh, a bit later. But basically, you know, um, you had um, a kind of annually reenacted uh, process of confrontation, um, which you also see in other kind of Shia societies um, uh, carrying, uh, taking on uh, uh, dynamics of its own and, and, and embodying a lot of kind of symbols of, 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 of repression and, and, and resistance and so on. But I mean, in the Saudi case, it had a spe special significance because these rituals were banned, I mean, completely banned, and there's uh, no other case um, where, where this was, um, uh, these rituals were treated um, so, so harshly. So basically, the, in the book, I try to kind of explain how the politics of a minority in a country like Saudi Arabia works. So it's not just specific to the kind of Saudi Shia case, but I was interested in, in how um, does a state work with a group of people that it discriminates on one level, but needs to kind of work with on another level. Um, because almost all of Saudi Arabia's oil resources are located in the eastern province, the eastern province has long been the kind of economic um, backbone of all of Saudi Arabia, so it's vital that um, a certain amount of stability prevails there and there isn't an open revolt um, all the time. So on the one hand, um, uh, the alliance with the Wahhabi clergy demands some form of um, uh, uh, negative treatment of, of the Shia population, but on the other hand, you also have to deal with them somehow. So one way of dealing with, um, with a minority as such is through elite, I mean, integration of the local elites. Um, and this is uh, the concept of the politics of notables, which in, in Middle Eastern history has been uh, developed or, or used in a lot of cases, um, you know, Syria and Iraq and so on and so forth, also applies here um, in the sense that um, some of the urban elites in these towns that I showed you, the very old towns where there were old families, with extensive, especially land holdings, uh, interests in, in, in uh, trade, um, uh, uh, some of the overland trade uh, across the Arabian Peninsula, but also um, pearling and, uh, and trade you know, uh, between India and, um, and the Gulf port towns um, and Europe and so forth. Um, these elites, by and large, cooperated with um, the, the Saudi forces after they conquered the eastern province in 1913. 
So I was interested in how this affected um, the status of these elites and um, what happened to the kind of wider um, community. So, and the result of this was quite surprising, at least to me. So on the one hand, um, some of these notables became inter integrated into the bureaucracy. Um, so um, while they never became local governors, so no um, Shia has ever been governor of one of the Shia towns or of the eastern province, um, but they became kind of officials in the, in the municipality um, and, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, uh, the emergence of the oil industry, um, particularly from the 1940s onwards, um, where you had massive, I mean, oil fines and, and the influx of thousands and thousands of Americans um, and other uh, foreigners to kind of develop the oil resources of, of the eastern province, um, led to new opportunities for, you know, the, the people in the region. Um, so Aramco, the, the kind of Saudi oil company, hired a lot of Shia, um, and while they, there was a glass ceiling within the company as to, you know, what level they could reach, um, they kind of uh, where it became the kind of backbone of, of Aramco, I mean the lower staff and the middle ranking staff and so on and so forth. So a lot of the notables, um, especially at the beginning of the oil company, um, were recruited into the oil company. So, and um, they were distinctively um, secularized in the process. Um, whereas previously, part of their authority in the kind of local communities had been based also on the fact that um, there were always clerics coming from the notable families who had strong ties to, to the kind of elite uh, in Najaf, the Shia clerics in Najaf, so they went to study there and then came back as local maraja, so local kind of clerical authorities. But with this kind of um, secularization and also the influx of new political ideologies such as Arab nationalism, uh, communism, um, and the kind of movement towards the oil industry, um, basically none of the people of these notable families went to study um, anymore in the, in the houses, in the, in the religious schools. So they left the field, um, this is one of the kind of last uh, of these notable family clerics, and they left the field open to new forces. So basically, while they were in the oil company, and they saw that kind of in the region there were broad changes uh, undergoing. A lot of the countries were struggling for, um, you know, against colonialism and uh, and um, yeah, Arab national and partly because of uh, a lot of uh, other Arab migrant workers moved to the eastern province and other Gulf states and brought with them the ideologies um, that were prevalent in Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Palestine, and so on at the time. They brought with them highly politicized. Uh, I mean, they, they were many of these people were highly politicized and recruited um, amongst the, the oil workers uh, and amongst the people um, they lived. And this is why you had a lot of Shia joining kind of underground movements uh, uh, from communist parties to um, you know, various strands of Arab nationalism and uh, so on and so forth. And so the Shia were heavily involved in kind of the Saudi uh, leftist uh, uh, politics, something that today obviously has more or less, um, uh, you know, lost its importance. But at the time, you know, when you remember that the, what was called the Arab Cold War, the rivalry between Nasser and his form of Arab nationalism and the, you know, the kind of pro-Western monarchies, um, you know, this was the <coughs> dominant struggle from about the mid-1950s to 1970 in the region. Uh, obviously, Nasser lost eventually, but um, it looked for a while as if the monarchies were going to uh, all collapse. 
Um, so in that context, you know, having a, a strong kind of leftist element in that part of, 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 of Saudi Arabia was a grave threat. So I think it also contributed to the way in which the state started to use Islam you know, as a kind of state-sponsored ideology. But that is something um, that I'm working on in a kind of separate project, and I won't go into too much detail here. But basically what it meant was that the local elites gave up the clerical field to new forces. And these new forces were Shia Islamists, who basically, um, around the 1950s in Iraq, you had um, similar developments occurring as what I just described, in the sense that the Iraqi Communist Party was becoming the kind of most popular political force in the kind of centers of, of, of Shiism, Arab Shiism, and including in the shrine cities, the Hausa cities of Najaf and Karbala. Um, and so uh, a lot of the kind of clergy in, that, in, in the shrine cities um, started to found uh, political organizations that, whose main aim was basically to defeat um, uh, you know, secular ideologies um, and, and leftist ideologies. So the Dawah party was founded at the time, and another political organization um, uh, led by um, a Shia cleric, uh, called uh, Ayatollah Muhammad Mehdi al-Shirazi uh, was also founded. And this was later became known as the Shirazi movement. Now the Shirazi movement um, was not particularly influential in Iraq um, or in uh, Iran or other areas um, you know, where there are a lot of um, uh, well, Shia Muslims, but it became the kind of most important um, Shia political movement in Saudi Arabia and in, in some of the other Gulf states. Um, so we're going to talk about this a little bit. This is this Muhammad Nahir Shirazi. So they, from the 1970s onwards, Muhammad, uh, Shirazi moved to Kuwait after uh, Saddam um, became a threat to, to him and, uh, and to his followers. So from Kuwait, he started to kind of um, uh, recruit followers from the Gulf, young people who went um, to Kuwait. They built a big uh, you know, religious school in Kuwait. And young people traveled there on their holidays um, and, and, and so on um, to kind of study and, and were, you know, uh, became politically aware and were recruited into these movements. And um, after the Iranian Revolution in 1979, um, as I briefly mentioned before, they staged an uprising, uh, particularly in Katif, with, with some also protests and issues in, in, in Al-Aqsa, but mainly centered on Katif, and they took over the town um, for a couple of weeks, um, uh, stole weapons from the security forces, and people were killed um, on both sides. Eventually, the National Guard um, was brought in, and, and the uprising was crushed, and uh, hundreds of people left into exile and started to kind of found um, uh, opposition movements um, abroad, I mean, more, more officially and more publicly. So they published uh, magazines such as this, um, called the Islamic Revolution, and really um, kind of were inspired by the discourse and also the symbolism um, of the Iranian Revolution and of, of kind of, um, you know, uh, um, Shiism more generally, I mean, politicized um, uh, Shiism. Um, and this was the main, uh, the main logo of the main, um, uh, you know, political organization. Um, which was responsible, which was made up of Shia of the eastern province. So, in exile, they faced a kind of difficult time, uh, partly in Iran, and then the Shirazi movement fell out with Iran over um, over issues that I won't go into detail here. Then they had to go to Syria. They stayed for a while in Saida Zainab, uh, the the suburb of Damascus, 
that um, uh, many of you will know is now a scene of heavy fighting um, in, the, in the kind of Syrian civil war. Um, and Saida Zainab um, uh, is very straight. I mean, I did a lot of field work there. I went there in uh, 2008, and it was still a very kind of sleepy you know, neighborhood. There were some Iraqi refugees, but I totally didn't grasp the significance of it. I thought it was a total anom an anomaly in, in the context of of Syria, um, uh, and but you had the kind of shrine of, of, of Zainab allegedly there, and you and, and the Shirazi movement was actually key in kind of establishing, uh, you know, religious seminaries there, and um, uh, and, and the, which still remain there. So a lot of the kind of Saudis and also man, many Bahrainis um, who were also in, 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 in kind of related to this movement went to Sayyida Zainab um, for about a decade. But anyway, they didn't achieve their goal of, of changing either the political system in Saudi Arabia or um, really influencing um, uh, you know, what went on in the eastern province. The discrimination of the Shia didn't stop because of the uprising. In fact, repression increased. There were many political prisoners um, and, and the people abroad, they didn't have passports. So they were you know, in a difficult situation. So by the late 1980s, especially after the end of the Iran-Iraq war um, and kind of also the end of the Soviet Union and, uh, and so on, um, uh, they started negotiations um, with the Saudi leadership, in particular with um, King Fahad, um, who felt that um, while these people were not a threat, really, um, they were a nuisance, and particularly they were very good at um, uh, uh, you know, influencing the media outside and um, at co cooperating with human rights organizations. So as human rights became a more important discourse, um, uh, you know, uh, they wanted to co-opt um, uh, these people. And so in 1993, you had negotiations between uh, emissaries of King Fahad and um, the kind of uh, leadership of, of this uh, political organization, and they reached a deal whereby all the, these exiles were allowed to come back, political prisoners would be released, um, and um, they would stop all their political activities in return. And um, they accepted. Um, now, the problem with this uh, agreement was that basically it didn't really solve the underlying problem of, um, you know, uh, um, religious discrimination in Saudi Arabia, or um, it didn't really affect you know, the political system uh, in Saudi Arabia. So um, uh, when they came back, initially they were greeted as, as heroes um, uh, for a while, because they've obviously sacrificed a large part of their life abroad and so on. Um, but afterwards, after a while, people started to question, you know, why um, did you start this in the first place, if after 15 years you know, uh, you come back and, um, uh, and don't have much to show. So one of the issues that was addressed uh, at that time was the issue of these um, public rituals. So um, not officially, but kind of implicitly, many of the Shia rit uh, Muharram rituals and so on were allowed to happen in Shia majority areas, so in Katif, um, but would still be prohibited in mixed towns in the eastern province. So Basically, um, in places where no Sunni could be disturbed by these rituals, they could now be carried out. Um, and also, then later on, um, as King Abdullah was, um, uh, or Crown Prince and then King Abdullah was becoming more important, um, uh, they were kind of invited on a symbolic level to, to his national dialogue. One of his key initiatives was um, to bring Saudis from different regions and backgrounds together in a national dialogue. Um, which held meetings, you know, uh, frequent meetings over many years, and frankly started to discuss issues that were totally taboo before. 
So if I had, I mean, if anyone would have talked about these issues in Saudi Arabia in the 80s, um, it would not have been possible. It wouldn't be discussed in the newspapers at all. Uh, I was told that um, until about this 1993 agreement, you would never even see a Shia cleric in a newspaper, for example. I mean, not even a depiction or, or, of one. Or, um, and these things kind of changed um, uh, on the King Abdullah. So um, uh, it, uh, some of the Shia clerics became visible in the press. You know, uh, if a delegation from the Eastern Province went to shake the hands of the um, uh, you know, uh, something like that. Uh, uh, just such an image, you know, became possible. So this is Hassan al-Safar, who, who is the leader of, of this kind of um, Shirazi group in Saudi that I've been talking about before, and King Abdullah here having a, a coffee, and um, at one of these national dialogue sessions. So one can say that nothing has been done, and in particular, if we see how things have changed over the last. Um, uh, ten months or so, um, uh, perhaps people think that, well, actually, it wasn't so bad, um, at least in the first period of, of Abdullah's um, uh, reign. So here you have another kind of you know, delegation visiting and so on. Um, but basically, the, the, the underlying problems um, that led to the, all these political movements in the first place were not addressed. And so it was not really surprising that um, when kind of the Arab uprisings started to you know, spread from one country to another, that in such a long-standing conflict um, with also kind of a long history of political protest, so in the eastern province, unlike in other, I mean, in general, obviously, demonstrations are banned under Saudi law, or any demonstration. But in the eastern province, um, you know, just this brief overview that I've showed you, uh, it's not really unusual for, for crowds to go out. They do that anyway during Muharram, and you will always have political uh, demonstrations. I mean, over the decades you had that. So it wasn't really something, um, you know, surprising, I mean, at least not to me, um, because the political grievances um, were still there. Um, but it was something that um, you know, was, I think, deeply unsettling for the um, Saudi ruling family and um, also for Saudi Arabia's allies, um, because the protests that started in February 2011 really uh, did not fit this narrative that Saudi Arabia and uh, the oil-rich monarchies are basically exempt uh, from the Arab uprisings um, and are key partners in trying to manage the fallouts of the Arab uprisings because they're stable um, and, um, uh, well, mainly because they're stable and they're pro-Western. A narrative that, you know, focused on the kind of, in some, sometimes daily, but certainly weekly protests, um, most uh, overwhelming majority of them peaceful, um, calling for national uh, uh, I mean issues on a national level, so political reforms, release of prisoners, um, uh, well, including of the, also the kind of more general slogans of the Arab uprisings, human rights, justice, um, uh, um, freedom, dignity, and so on. Um, a narrative that focused on this was very, very counter, um, I mean, it was counter the, the kind of dominant uh, narratives that were portrayed by Saudi Arabia and um, uh, by its um, uh, Western allies. And so it was something that um, um, basically had to be crushed. And um, uh, I think uh, in the last um, uh, two years, um, uh, we've seen a kind of um, a really harsh crackdown on uh, any of these people in the eastern province um, that went out and um, uh, protested for... Um, 
their rights. And um, basically, through this repression, um, the movement has been largely crushed because most of the leaders of that um, uh, protest movement uh, are either imprisoned, in exile, or um, dead. Um, so one of the figures that um, became uh, crucial and became a kind of um, symbol of that new protest movement uh, is this man, uh, um, Sheikh Nimr an Nimr, who you might have heard about, who's become a bit of a celebrity now. I, I'm not sure he's enjoying his time very much in the Saudi prison, but he's certainly become much more prominent than I suppose he ever hoped and I would ever <laughs> have thought. I mean, I, I remember his mosque in the small village of Awamiya uh, being a you know, very small mosque on the outskirts of, of that particular village. Um, he was you know, quite well known at the time, but he was nowhere near you know, the kind of statues that he enjoys now, uh, mainly also because of you know, the, the repression he suffered. Um, uh, anyway, he was one of the clerics who, from the beginning, was against this 1993 agreement and against giving up, um, you know, the, the kind of opposition movements in return for basically no political concessions, uh, you know, in return for basically personal, I mean, uh, amnesty um, and so on. So um, initially, people weren't really listening to him very much, but he has been kind of continuing with a more radical discourse. Uh, for decades, so um, especially since 2009 when there were some other issues um, and then since 2011 when he was the only major cleric to back the protests, um, you know, the young protesters um, and encourage them to go out into the streets. Um, uh, uh, from then on he really became a very prominent figure um, and um, uh, obviously became uh, wanted. I mean, he was wanted for his role in supporting protests in 2009 and was actually in hiding throughout much of um, 2011. Um, but because he became such a prominent figure, I suppose um, you can understand why you know he has been. Uh, I mean, he met such a uh, um, uh, uh, harsh um, uh, fate. So uh, when he was arrested, he was shot in the leg and has been uh, in, in in prison, uh, solitary confinement since and is now on, on death row. So this is this uh, prominent case that uh, you will all read about um, in the news. Um, so, and I'm happy to answer any questions about that. Um, these are um, some of the pictures um, that, um, you know, from, from some of the rallies in, uh, in uh, the Eastern Province. And um, not surprisingly, um, because the kind of more modest demands that were, you know, uh, that were kind of the dominant demands at the beginning of the protest movement, um, which were calling for national reforms and, um, uh, yeah, I mean, very doable um, uh, uh, issues such as, uh, you know, releasing prisoners. Um, the more kind of the repression intensified and the more kind of the movement radicalized itself, um, the stronger the demands became. So this is, for example, a poster um, saying that here is the uh, the, uh, the the Republic of Al-Aqsa and Katif, and not uh, the Kingdom of the Wahhabiya and the Al Saud. So um, this is obviously a slogan that is very um, uh, offensive uh, to the to the Saudi ruling family. Um, uh, but it is something that um, I suppose is a product of a two-way relationship here. Um, and so we were all wondering under um, King Salman, um, the new king, um, what would change. Um, now, King Abdullah was presented as this reformist king, um, uh, and uh, I suppose a lot of people who closely watched Saudi Arabia and a lot of Saudis were eventually 
uh, quite disappointed that um, uh, a lot of the, I suppose, reforms that I suppose he actually generally wanted, um, uh, you know, to, to um, carry out some reforms, um, but um, uh, he didn't manage to. So um, um, people were wondering, you know, what would happen under the new king. Well, he also met with all sorts of people from all over the kingdom as governor of. Uh, Riyadh, he had an experience with um, almost everyone uh, in the country, so um, it was a bit anyone's guess which way it was going to go. Um, but I suppose um, in response to kind of the general mood in the region and also in Saudi Arabia, um, uh, King Salman mainly reached out to the conservative elements within Saudi Arabia, so to the Wahhabi clergy, um, to other clerics who are more kind of uh, Muslim Brotherhood in inclined, and also to Salafi including to Salafi jihadi um, uh, groups. So really to those elements, which on the one hand obviously are the backbone of um, the Saudi regime, but on the other hand are also those forces who are most um, you know, against the Shia and are most in favor of a tough um, stance towards them. So I suppose since he came to power, um, the Shia didn't have you know, a, a very good time and don't have much... Um, uh, cause um, for, for hope for, for their future uh, in particular because um, not only was none of um, and were none of their concerns addressed um, in fact um, you know the kind of tough anti-terrorism uh, cyber crime laws um, and so on and so forth um, you know were implemented um, uh, some of them were, were, were announced under King Abdullah and some you know this year um, were applied to almost anyone who dissented um, including uh, any dissenting voices on the intervention in Yemen that I'll get to uh, now. So it is a crime if you're criticizing Saudi Arabia's uh, involvement in the Yemen war. If you, if you say the war is not a good idea, you can go to jail for that. So that's one thing. Um, also should remind us that perhaps um, total approval ratings of these things are not to be taken at their face value. Um, but on the other hand, um, obviously the kind of religious diversity that I've talked about um, at the beginning um, is slowly becoming a kind of Pandora's box. Um, and I'm not saying that as someone who wishes that this is the case, you see. I mean, uh, the old kind of Orientalist tradition, uh, there was a uh, discourse about the, the kind of mosaic of minorities in the Middle East um, and, um, you know, that was difficult to match that with the nation state and so on and so forth. I'm not advocating um, such a view, um, uh, but it is a problem because actually most of the nation states in that part of the world have discriminated against one group or another uh, and for a long time consistently and therefore have created enemies um, that are difficult to kind of, um, well, to appease or, or which they are not um, willing to appease. And this is one of the cases. Now here you have the additional problem now that um, the Islamic State... Um, since, since about a year, has started to um, basically kill uh, Shia in the eastern province um, and as part of a larger strategy of purifying the Arabian Peninsula from uh, everything that goes against um, um, uh, um, the kind of orthodoxy that it wants to implement. And now, strangely, or perhaps not so strangely, this is pretty close to what the original kind of uh, Wahhabi um, idea was of purifying the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and you see this in some of the statements that are being uh, published after um, these attacks. So, um, 
Yeah, you can uh, you can see this here. This was after the, the, the attack in in Daman. Um, but basic, but recently there have also been attacks in uh, Kuwait uh, on a on a mosque. Um, uh, this mosque was actually kind of the center of um, of migrants that migrated from Al-Aqsa, one of the kind of two centers of Shiism in Saudi Arabia that I showed you, migrated to Kuwait mainly in the 18th and 19th century. So um, uh, this did also have a relationship to Saudi, and the attacker in that Kuwait bombing was a Saudi national as well. So I think it was a direct, you know, kind of a proxy um, uh, thing with, with Saudi. And just uh, two days ago, you now had even an attack um, on an um, Ismaili mosque in the, in the south um, uh, of the kingdom, in Najran. So we really see that um, uh, there is a kind of concerted effort here, really, to stoke sectarian tensions, and this time not you know, just from the government, but also from the side of, of the kind of broader jihadi movement. And one of the things that could be said um, about the Saudi state until a year ago was that, you know, with, with all the kind of criticisms that you could um, uh, bring up about the treatment of, of their um, uh, citizens and of, of, of their minorities, um, they never allowed uh, an attack, a jihadi attack, on uh, the Shia to happen. Um, and there were such plots. And Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula had for a long time wanted to um, assassinate key leaders, including this Hassan al-Safar and perhaps others, to kind of you know, increase sectarian tensions. I mean, this was Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq's Al-Qaeda strategy in Iraq, right? To, to start a civil war between Sunni and Shia, um, uh, under which condition um, you know, this uh, jihadi group would become the kind of main defender of Sunni interests. And we see now that this strategy actually succeeded in Iraq. So what the group is trying to do is export this strategy to Saudi Arabia. And um, we have, um, luckily I suppose, not seen any counterattacks um, from um, Shia militants um, uh, in response to these things. But we have seen kind of um, local um, check, I mean, uh, people guarding their cities and villages, um, so kind of local defense forces, uh, being set up that have um, established checkpoints and so on and, and control people who go into into the Shia area. So um, on a certain level you have a kind of separate uh, uh, um, kind of structure of authority being set up there. Now there is some cooperation with the government obviously because the government is very worried about these attacks um, but um, at the same time we are seeing a certain well it is moving in a certain direction and the direction is, is not good. Um, so in this context, right, I mean, I've uh, written a couple of uh, opinion pieces and so on saying that in this context, wouldn't it make sense for the government um, and the new king to just say, well, actually, you see, the bigger danger is the Islamic State, right? It's, uh, it is it's basically adopting an ideology that was key to the founding of our state, but removes the monarchy as an institution from it. And we, as the monarchs, are directly threatened by that. And this ideology appeals to the backbone of our society, to, to kind of the constituents that we, you know, are mo that, that are most loyal to us. So this is a real threat to us. Now let's address this and um, uh, see that you know the people who are being attacked by 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 these by the Islamic State um, should should have their loyalty to us and shouldn't be feel threatened, you know, from all levels. But unfortunately, we have seen no development in this um, direction. Uh, the Majlis Ashura, the kind of consultative council that was um, set up in the 90s that cannot legislate but it can kind of um, float ideas, 
floated an idea after the first attack on the Shia that there should be an anti-sectarian uh, hate speech law. Um, and such a law, for example, exists in Kuwait. Now, in Kuwait, sometimes it's also used against uh, government critics and so on, so we wouldn't want to have it applied in that way, but anyway, it, it is a good thing in theory. And um, the Shura Council voted on this, and it voted against it, uh, with a two-third majority. And this is the only initiative that was taken, a positive initiative in response um, to these attacks. So this really makes you wonder, you know, what the role of the state is and, and where this is all going to go. And I also don't have um, easy answers um, to this, but um, uh, I mean, it is, uh, you know, quite a worrying phenomenon. I mean, especially these attacks, which are now almost happening on a weekly or, or bi-weekly basis. And Islamic State has announced more attacks. Um, so, I mean, eventually this will lead to a bad situation um, and... I also don't know. I mean, uh, perhaps uh, eventually we won't call them the other Saudis anymore, but something else. Um, and I will uh, open the floor for questions. Um, and um, thank you. Well, as you predicted, an absolutely fascinating talk, rich with empirical detail, but also uh, crammed full of questions and, and issues. So uh, feel free to stick your hand up. I will recognize you, then you can speak, but you have to say who you are, and it's a question, not a statement. There you go. Thanks. Um, my name is John McHugh. Um, Saudi Arabia is a rather tribal society, to put it mildly. Um, do the Shia of the Eastern have tribes in the same way? And are they the descendants of the people who used to cultivate the date palms and the food? And basically, I'm not suggesting they, was, they, they had the status of slaves, but it was sort of thought of as hewers of wood and drawers by the Ottoman and um, local tribal leaders. Hmm. Um, that's a very good question, and it's, it's, it's another layer uh, of the problem in the sense that. Um, uh, the, they have been sedentarized for centuries um, in these kind of urban centers. Um, so most of, 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 of the Hassawis and Katifis um, would not uh, identify themselves as tribal, although some claim to have be linked to some of the larger tribes. Um, often if you ask um, people from that tribe, um, it wouldn't necessarily, or it's not you see, tribal history is one of the most contentious subjects, actually. In I thought, you know, my topic was quite contentious. I mean, it is. But then I found out that actually, if you're writing about a tribal comp or tribal history anywhere in the 18th century, it could be equally or even more contentious, and the book will immediately be banned. And one of the what, one thing you might find interesting is that obviously, do you know who's, who the main censor in Saudi Arabia is and was for the last few decades? The new king. He's been very interested in uh, history and, uh, you know, has been kind of uh, um, reading all the books and especially he was interested in tribal history. So, um, basically, yes, one of the problems is, or, is that they're not integrated that much into the tribal hierarchy and therefore um, also there was a directive by Ibn Saud to his um, children that they shouldn't marry um, any Shia. Therefore, you have, I mean, one of the main state-building projects, I mean, uh, in Saudi Arabia was 
um, into marriage with all the elites from all the regions that were conquered. And therefore you have a, you know, pretty close relationships with elites in all the other um, uh, regions. When in the eastern province, um, you obviously have intermarriage with some of the Sunni tribes and some of the key families, uh, including um, the Bani Khalid, but you don't have that um, with the Shia. So this is a kind of social barrier that with time became, uh, I mean, incre- you know, made the problem uh, uh, worse, I mean, or not easier anyway. Um, but at the same time, uh, for example, um, many of the kind of dominant the, the kind of dominant tribe in the eastern province is always the Bani Khalid, and um, part of some of them converted, um, uh, you know, over the last few centuries to Shiism. Now this is not accepted by the kind of main leaders of, of the tribe at the moment. But I've interviewed people um, from this tribe um, whose families converted as recently as the 19th century. Um, because they were, you know, uh, they were they were kind of the chiefs of, of these different villages. So at some point you would have uh, a sub, you know, one family of the Bani Khalid would settle in a Shia village, and just to kind of be easier, I mean, for for them to be easier to to communicate with the subjects, they converted. Obviously, after 1913, when the province was conquered by the Saudi uh, forces, um, this became also a problem uh, for them. Um, and on the second question. Um, Yes, they were, I mean, there are Shia elite families in Hofuf, but um, uh, the kind of Sunni elite families are dominant also in land holdings and, and were always the dominant force in, in Hofuf. Um, so, um, yes, by and large, um, they were kind of the, 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 yeah, I mean, they were working on the date palms, they were the pearl divers, um, uh, and so on and so forth. And actually, the Shia community in Medina um, are called Nahawila. Um, uh, so from uh, from kind of pa- up, they're called after the the palm because they were working more or less as slaves uh, on the on the you know date plantations um, in outside of Medina. Right. Yes. You sir with the glasses. Yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. Martin. Great speech. Uh, my name is Martin Malayan. I'm a student here at the LC. Um, so I have two questions, very briefly. One of them is. Um, I understand your point about promoting hate speech. Um, although you need to differentiate, I think, between you know what what kind of um, Islam, what is the different sects, uh, kind of define hate speech. Um, so, at one hand, you have um, the statements just being a Sunni is considered um, as, a, as a form of hate speech for Shias. So, the the one question here is. Don't you think the amount of money spent by the Saudis to uh, pr- to just provide security kind of exonerates uh, a little bit of that kind of conspiracy that's going on here? Second, uh, where is Iran in all this? Uh, I-, I certainly see no mention of Iran uh, in relation to the other Saudis. Okay, and there's not yes you. Being a fanatic terrorist organization, it's not just affecting the Shia 
it's also affecting the siblings. I come from the Eastern Province, and during the bombing, we stood united as one nation, as one population against the terrorist attacks. And we have to be very proud of that. And I'm not talking about the Shia who are, and we have to make a distinction now, because the Shia are highly educated people. And you have a high academically professional sector in the Eastern province. I'm not talking about these are the people I would like you to address, not the simple Shia person who is following fanatic clergymen also, who are also ruled or are controlled by Iran. I'm talking about moderate, well-educated Shia. We are together against fanaticism, against any kind of uh, terrorism. So this we have to differentiate. And I think Can you bring it towards a question, please? I mean, that's towards a comment. Okay, lovely. And the final question there uh, in this round. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Um, if you forgive me, I'll give you two very brief questions. First of all, I'd like to thank those gentlemen. Uh, I'm a specialist on Iran, by the way, I'm a journalist. Um, uh, is, there's a lot of paranoia in Bahrain and um, Saudi Arabia around Iran's, uh, Iran's uh, influence of Shia in those regions. I was just wondering if you could comment to what extent you think it's paranoia or to what extent you think it's realistic. And, set, and second of all, um, you mentioned uh, industrial agriculture and industrial processes draining groundwater. There's been a lot of talk about global warming as well, maybe being a, um, a latent contributed to the Syrian conflict, the uh, emperors of Ethiopia were kicked out because of famine and because of global warming. Uh, I was just wondering if you find global warming a driver in any respect in the, um, in the politics of the conflict in the region. There you go. I, I counted four questions. Uh, take them at your leisure. Yeah. Um, uh, perhaps just the last point. Um, uh, yes, I mean, of course, uh, uh, environmental factors are, I mean, uh, driving a lot of uh, are key. Now, uh, in this, you still have, uh, I mean, a couple of days ago, right, there was a new report that soon the Gulf region will be so hot that you can't even go outside anymore in the summer. But I mean, for now on, obviously, everyone can cool their houses um, and, uh, and, and so on. So, I mean, um, it's not as if, um, uh, yeah, I mean, as if it's, that is a, is a key problem at the moment, but it obviously leads to uh, 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 enormous energy consumption um, in the Gulf states and including in Saudi Arabia, which eventually will become a problem because uh, um, energy consumption is rising while oil prices are going down. Um, uh, and um, so um, that is a problem. But the fact that the kind of the face of, of the eastern province changed profoundly I mean, uh, some of our guests from uh, that region can probably testify to that, and it's nothing to do with the Shia or Sunni or, or anything like that. Um, uh, um, but to address um, uh, the point of, of our um, uh, guests here from Saudi Arabia, um, yes, I mean, uh, on a, I, I see that on a so, uh, social level. I, I was also quite moved, I suppose, by the response to these bombings. And right, many people from across the country traveled to, to the funerals and, uh, you know, and showed solidarity um, uh, and so on. And, and kind of, you know, the, the, kind of, uh, the, the, the leadership and the politicians, they all um, uh, said this was a bad thing. Um, uh, but then it just happens again uh, a few months later or a few weeks later. Um, and um, actually there were clerics um, uh, supporting this. 
uh, or uh, saying that, well, this is all a conspiracy, you see. Here is the Mu'amara, not with me, um, you see. They were saying this is actually an Iranian plot. They bombed the Shia mosque, so they make the Shia angry. Um, and they're doing this over and over again. Um, and uh, now it is up to everyone to, you know, to judge which conspiracy he would like to believe. Um, uh, but um, basically the problem was that you know, it's just going on and on. And so um, there was a kind of standing together. But, um, and this also shows you that, yes, on the one hand, obviously Saudi Arabia is spending uh, on security in the region where uh, like, all of its revenues come from which it would do whether they would be Shia or not Shia. Um, but basically, since 2011, um, you have basically police uh, being withdrawn from Shia areas. So Katif uh, is a kind of area where um, there is a kind of vacuum of, um, uh, of, of government because uh, the security situation um, uh, has deteriorated so much. Um, and a lot of the kind of uh, money is being spent on um, you know, surveillance and uh, uh, keeping the Shia in check rather than keeping outsiders from attacking them. Otherwise, how can we explain you know, the things that have happened over the last year? Now, um, I'm saying this was different in the past, um, and I'm not necessarily saying um, this is uh, happening with consent of the government. Obviously, it seems that there are just too many people or too many cells plotting such attacks, um, and there are, I mean, there are thousands and thousands of Saudis who joined the Daesh. So um, it will not be uh, unimaginable that they come back um, and are too numerous to, to be monitored. Um, but nevertheless, any money that Saudi Arabia is spending on the security of the Shia is obviously not achieving um, the goal of, of security. Um, and on Iran, um, uh, I did uh, mention Iran. In fact, I said uh, they were there for a decade. Um, in the book, um, there are hundreds of entries on Iran. There's a whole chapter on the Shia opposition in Iran. Um, I've published widely also on one uh, uh, opposition movement that um, you know, was militant and allied to Iran. Um, so um, uh, I don't think it's uh, fair to kind of accuse me that I'm not talking about that. Um, but the fact is that um, we have to um, understand we have to somehow detach these things a little bit from um, these kind of wider regional um, issues because otherwise, I mean, governments use um, these kind of international um, relations of, of kind of localized conflicts to delegitimize any political demands. Um, and uh, this is happening, obviously, in this case. Now, if... Um, and Saudi Arabia did have opportunities to kind of, um, you know, appease uh, the Shia more broadly... Um, but in a context like now, um, you know, where basically the state cannot provide security anymore, you have a cold war uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, and you know there are people in exile, and and you have um, even you know the leaders are being executed. So I mean, uh, if anything will drive um, uh, you know uh, Shia in the eastern province towards Iran, um, it is this. Um, uh, it's not a natural affinity at all. Um, I mean, they're Arabic-speaking. They, they share the same problems that other Arab Shia have with Iran, in the sense that they go there, you know, they, they think that um, you know, uh, uh, they're there to marry like, young uh, Iranian women or something like that. They're being treated as Saudis if they go to Iran, you see. Um, so um, the issue is just uh, quite complex. And um, uh, I'm not saying uh, Iran is not trying to use um, uh, you know, whichever 
um, groups that it can work with, and at the moment it is mainly um, uh, Shia groups in the region. Um, but basically, I think um, this protest movement uh, did not have much to do with Iran. Um, and um, it was related to local grievances that were there for decades, um, and they didn't need Iran um, uh, to you know, tell them to go out into the street. Right. A short question with an answer. Uh, yes. Uh, you did mention about Shia. Among Shias, you see, there are so many subsects as well. Asghar Sharif, for instance, Berbers, there are Ismailis who don't observe Ashura as much as the Asghar as well. And of course, there are uh, 20, 30 Mahabharas, they are called, you see, they are from Yemen, I think they have. Uh, are there, and also I want to know the difference between the Wahhabis and Salafis, because they go in the same vein as such. So if you could enlighten me on that. Okay, you got that? Yes. Hi, Lina Kati. Now with the Arab Reform Initiative. Um, I just wanted actually to follow up on uh, something he mentioned, which is uh, something you said on the outreach by King Salman to uh, conservatives. You named Wahhabis, uh, Muslim Brotherhood leaning groups, and Salafi jihadists. Um, I was talking to someone uh, who's a former Saudi diplomat, and he said quite controversially that he thinks that King Salman's outreach to Wahhabis uh, is a good step because it was the retreat of the Wahhabists in Saudi Arabia, the Wahhabi clerics, that paved the way for the Muslim Brotherhood to uh, become more prominent. So what, what you're, you're saying is uh, slightly different because it's more about if there's an outreach going on to uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, then maybe we're seeing a case of pragmatism on, on, on part of the, the king. Uh, or what is it? I mean, in Syria, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood is trying to sell itself as the alternative to Salafi jihadists, while at the same time teaming up with Ahrar al-Sham, who are uh, uh, an extremist uh, group that is supported by Saudi Arabia. So the situation is quite complex. So I wondered, you know, your explanation of, of the non-black and white uh, mm. uh, dynamic between the Wahhabis, Salafists, the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, and Sorry, it's a complex question. Yeah, it's a complex answer. Hold that with one more question. Did you, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask more about affiliation. And during your research, did you uncover amongst the Shia and Saudi Arabia um, any sort of diversity amongst? You know, is there a traction? Uh, did the non kind of politicised, quietist version of uh, Shias like? kind of Ayatollah Sistani and Ayatollah Khoury subscribe to. Do you uncover any evidence of uh, that kind of ideology gaining um, traction? Excellent. That's pretty good. Yeah, these are very good questions. Um, just on, yeah, I mean, the, this, is, this is the one billion dollar question, obviously, and it's very difficult to address, partly because, um, obviously, no one really knows. But you can make a guess, I mean, you can look at what um, people say, and uh, Twitter these days is a good way of uh, finding out. Uh, because basically you had, when the new king came to power, you had like clerics from all the different strands, including those who were most critical of, of Saudi, uh, of the ruling family before, um, some of whom were exiled or silenced, um, and they were critical of King Abdullah in particular. They suddenly started to endorse the new king, and then very rapidly you have the declaration of war against the Houthis in Yemen. So you have the Yemen intervention. So all of these people support this intervention, and if you look at what they say, 
Um, a lot of them say it's a religious duty to do this. It's defense of Arabism. So the interesting thing, right, about the new kind of Saudi nationalism over the last year is that's a combination of trying to become or rem the most important Arab country and define some of the norms of Arabism, which was a struggle that has kind of shaped the politics of that region for decades, and at the same time, you know, become the leader of the Sunni world. Um, so some of these clerics also justified the intervention in sectarian terms, saying it is a uh, it, is, it is a way of purifying the Arabian Peninsula, and, um, uh, and that is quite worrying um, uh, in itself. And the support came from all these different groups. Now, it is, it is difficult to differentiate between Wahhabis and Salafis um, uh, because there is a lot of overlap, and, um, uh, and you know, it would probably take us too long now to go into uh, very much detail here. But on the Muslim Brotherhood, um, it is striking that um, even some of the kind of people who are considered the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood in Saudi Arabia um, have endorsed um, the new kind of the policies of the of the new of the new leadership. And um, we have seen an outreach to Muslim Brotherhood branches in other countries. Uh, partly, I think, because of Yemen, this was a necessity. Uh, because in Yemen, I mean, <laughs> if you don't want the Houthis, you don't want Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, you don't want the southern separatists really, and you, well, kind of work with Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but don't really want them obviously to control a massive territory, you know, on your border. The only real force are the Muslim Brotherhood. So if you're basically at war with everyone, or you just expect everyone, you know, then that's a key problem. So it is partly pragmatism in the sense that if Saudi Arabia wants to play this regional role, it needs to find some way of accommodating with the Muslim Brotherhood. And you're saying, um, what you said makes total sense in this, uh, but it doesn't really, it, it's, it, it makes sense in a Saudi view. So um, yes, the, the, the kind of original um, Wahhabi clerics, they were perhaps not so, well they were not the ones who built all the institutions in Saudi Arabia, the kind of universities, um, the, the Muslim World League and, and all the kind of international institutions that were used to spread um, the Saudi version of Islam um, you know, on, the, on the Faisal during the rivalry with Nasser. Um, these were Muslim Brotherhood people from Egypt and later Syria. And um, so there is a long institutional legacy of, of their um, power um, and influence. And only really over the last couple of years was there real tension. Before that there wasn't much tension. Um, uh, and um, so this has now been seemingly overcome. Um, it doesn't mean that the Muslim Brotherhood now becomes the most, um, uh, the most liked form of, of, of Sunni political Islam in Saudi Arabia, but it means that Saudi Arabia can work with it. Um, and that is a big change, um, but it doesn't really mean anything else. I mean, on the case that I'm talking about today, you see, um, uh, most of these people have pretty similar views on what should be done in the eastern province, or actually, or, or at least they, that what they say in public. Uh, privately, some have better relations with some of the um, uh, Shia clerics. And uh, this leads me to another point that um, uh, you made about you know, the importance of clerics also amongst the Shia. It is true um, that in this context of the eastern province, clerics are more important than amongst um, any of the other kind of Shia societies that I've studied, um, in the Gulf in particular. And I think this is because of um, sectarian discrimination. Um, because 
They live in a country in which clerics dominate the education sector and in which they're constantly being told that honor, because of your religious affiliation, you are supposed to do this and this and not this and this. And that's why I think clerics profit from that. And that's why I think the institution of, of, the, of the clerical leadership, um, you know, to kind of speak up against that, um, uh, has become so important in Saudi Arabia and has remained important even over the last few years, you know, with the kind of Arab Spring and, you know, youth movements and people were thought, you know, these were decentralized movements and, and you know, Arab Spring style and so on. It's true on the one hand, but on the other hand, clerics still become figureheads. Um, and I think this is particular Saudi Shiism actually here um, at play, and I think it's partly because of, you know, what the state and the clergy do to them. Um, now on Khui and Sistani, they were always the kind of most prominent, I suppose, the, the kind of most people followed this line. And actually the notable families, they were the ones who um, uh, who went to study with them, with this kind of mainstream Najafi line, and were the kind of defenders of, of that school uh, on the local level. But as I've explained, they you know lost in importance and especially opened up the clerical field to other forces, which were also opposed to Hui, Sistani, and, and Hakim, and these kind of people in the Iraqi scene. So if you like, the rivalry between the different marjas became played out also here in the Gulf, and similar things happened in Bahrain and Kuwait and so on. So this means that, so for example, this means that the kind of mainstream non-politicized line has lost in appeal, and even some of the political clerics uh, then like Hassan al-Safar now um, follows Sistani officially. I mean, he's a res representative of different uh, uh, um, ayatollahs, but one of them is Sistani. But that doesn't mean that he cannot play a role in politics, if you see what I mean. So the things are just much more nuanced, but I mean, in the Saudi context, um, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot about this in the book. <laughs> it's quite complex. All right, any more questions? Oh, what was your sorry? Are you ah, in the, sorry. Are the, the different, the different forms of yes. So uh, there are huge varieties, obviously, and one of the but one of the problems is that um, a kind of a push towards eradicating all forms of of the other makes the other look alike. If you see what I mean. So in the eyes of the state and also now of the Islamic state, these groups, whatever their differences are, are pretty much the same. Um, so while there are a lot of differences amongst them, and some are, you know, um, in terms of discrimination, it's, it doesn't really make a big difference. What's the but, size of population of Ismailis in Najran? Yeah, so the book is not really much about there is a little bit about the Ismailis in Najran, but it wasn't really. Um, is it the whole state, the whole province of Najran? No, it's in the it's near the border with um, Yemen, but yeah. it is one of the oldest settlements of uh, of Ismailis. Um, they're from the Makrami branch, so they're not the Aga Khanis. So I went, for example, to the Ismaili Institute here in London, and they said, oh, we have nothing to do with these people, you know, we don't have anything on them. So, so this was quite interesting, actually, even within, you see, the Ismaili community, there are stark differences. So you have, obviously, the same um, within the Twelver Shia. So all the people I talked about are Ithnashari's Twelver Shia. Now, within the Twelver Shia, in, even in Saudi Arabia, are big, big um, differences on a religious level. So there are, for example, the, the sheikhis, in the, in, which are prominent in Hassa. So in fact, the, the founder of that uh, mystical brand of Shiism, 
uh, Ahmed al-Aqsai, who became very prominent in Iraq and Iran, and the Babi movement and the Baha'i movement is a kind of uh, you know follower of this tradition. So had a lot of impact on you know the, the development of a world religion. He came from al-Aqsa and he fled that um, his hometown because the Saudi forces were capturing that area and were destroying uh, um, Shia mosques and killing Shia clerics. So he fled to Bahrain and then to Iraq. So you see, this is related to the kind of broader history of, of religion and, and intellectual kind of trends in, in that part of the world. But it's very complex, but it's all in here. <laughs> so, I don't know. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, my name is Suzuki. And, uh, and, uh, I've been studying Iranian uh, issues. And uh, well, I came here to observe the aftermath of the nuclear mediation in Iran. International uh, uh, power uh, chain uh, reshape uh, 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 In this respect, uh, uh, it, it was very impressive that, that, that this year, the Mecca uh, in Mecca, yeah. there was a huge uh, accident who killed uh, 460 uh, uh, some. Uh, number of Iranian uh, died. And uh, do you have some comments on the influence of that uh, incident to the relationship uh, for Saudi to Iran and also uh, the internal politics? Well, I can maybe give you a bit of a historical analogy. So in 1987, um, there was a, a big kind of uh, incident in, in on the Hajj um, uh, during which um, uh, several hundred Iranians also died in a clash where kind of it still never really was you know one never really knew what actually happened but several hundred Iranians died uh, also Saudis and Saudi security forces so there were some clashes and then there was a stampede um, and um, after this incident in which um, I think one of the wives uh, of Khomeini died um, uh, Iran was furious, and especially Khomeini was furious and wanted to retaliate against Saudi Arabia. So in response to that, you had the setting up of, uh, I suppose, the only real militant organization made up of Saudi Shia called uh, Hezbollah al-Hijaz. And they were directly set up to hit Saudi targets in the oil province and um, execute Saudi diplomats abroad. And they did that um, for a number of years. Um, and the kind of war of words escalated dramatically for you know about two years until um, Khomeini died. Now, I think um, I'm not sure this time is similar. We have certainly not seen anything like that um, happening, um, but it is a significant um, uh, development which I think in Iran has um, you know brought the kind of popular anti-Saudi sentiment very much you know, to the fore again. And, um, I mean, it's partly obviously something that the, that the um, Islamic Republic um, uh, is, is at the core of the Islamic Republic to a certain extent. I mean, among some sections of the um, uh, intelligence and uh, the, the military and, 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 and the more hardline elements in Iran. But on the other hand, you have obviously kind of a diplomatic outreach actually going on um, uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia um, as a kind of result of, of the Iran um, uh, plus one um, agreement. So um, you have, I suppose, the relationship with, between Iran and Saudi Arabia is also very complicated on the Iranian end. 
So I don't really know what's going to happen as a result of that. Um, but um, uh, I mean, some of some of the people who died are very high-level um, Iranian officials. So that's obviously not um, helped. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't uh, hope that uh, a repetition of, of, of what happened then um, happens now. But um, uh, on the other hand, um, this is a significant event. And um, I suppose at that time it was really a clash between the Saudis and the Iranians. And it probably had something to do with Shia rituals you know, being practiced on the Hajj. Whereas now um, it was probably just mismanagement and um, negligence on the Saudi side, which uh, people from different countries died. Now the majority are, Saudi, are Iranians, I think, so that's obviously uh, make this a big issue. But um, I, uh, uh, I don't really know is the answer. But um, uh, precedents, uh, you know, have not been good. On the other hand, the Hajj, while it's always a contentious issue inside Iranian relations, it's also one of the kind of bilateral issues that are actually positive on some level, because every year both countries have to sit down and agree on quotas and so on and so forth. So Iran also doesn't want to be cut off from the Hajj, and the Hajj is an important uh, issue for, I mean, an important tool in Saudi diplomacy and, uh, and legitimizing factors. So um, I suppose um, it could go both ways. Right. Now, we have to leave plenty of time for uh, you to buy Toby's book and for him to sign it. There is one last question, and I'm going to ask the final question, Chair's prerogative. Uh, yes? That's a very good question, uh, if a bit broad. I mean, uh, the book goes, it tells the story of, 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 of a perhaps a dozen or so opposition uh, and reform movements um, uh, now centered in the eastern province. There are similar such movements in other parts of the country, but um, they're not as well studied. Um, so in the 1980s, um, and perhaps, I mean, the kind of big kind of Sahwa uh, uh, movement that people talk about basically happened after um, Saudi Arabia invited American troops um, you know, in 1990 when uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait. Um, so uh, uh, to, for the liberation of Kuwait was organized from Saudi territory. So in response to that, uh, a very broad range of actors, um, including all the different ones that I'm not going to repeat here, um, Anyway, the, and, and partly led also by Muslim Brotherhood clerics, um, organized a very broad-based campaign against the government because they saw this as a, as, as kind of sacrilege. Um, one of the groups that kind of emerged out of this was Al Qaeda. I mean, uh, Bin Laden famously uh, offered uh, the Saudi um, uh, leadership to, to do the job himself with his fighters. So you know, Saudi shouldn't get the Americans, but should get um, you know uh, Bin Laden. 
um, they didn't accept that offer and you know uh, other things happened but I mean it's mainly since the 1990s that you had um, these things but actually what's interesting is that exactly the clerics I mean some are obviously in exile a lot of them are here in London so these people are still in opposition but a lot of the people that are in Saudi Arabia um, are actually exactly the same people who have supported the new king, who have supported the Yemen intervention, um, who are calling for you know, military intervention in Syria um, by Saudi Arabia, and are actually calling for harsher treatment of the Shia. So unfortunately, the things are not black and white, and um, at the moment, um, we see these people more in agreement with the monarchy than uh, against. All right, final thought. As I understand the central thesis of your book, I'm ready, obviously, but from your talk, is that the, the, the Saudi state is set up in such an exclusionary, exclusionary way that, that, it, that the, 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 the Shia, through their exclusion and repression, will constantly be a revolt, in, in revolt. And you've kind of broadened that out to say that other aspects within Saudi society will, will equally be pushed to the periphery of the state. So I suppose the question, this question always I hate getting at the end of um, lectures, so I, uh, I believe in sharing, um, is what, what would you do? So can the Saudi state reform enough to be inclusive? Or is it destined, I suppose, to, to be continually destabilized by these varying groups? Um. That's a good question. I'm happy I don't have to answer that uh, in real life. I mean, I think the question is more... Um, I, I mean, if it doesn't, it will not survive. Okay. Eventually. So if it doesn't move to a, a kind if of... If it's inclusive not inclusive system. of its citizens, yeah. and we're talking about one issue here, there's similar such issues in all regions uh, of the country, and um, it's just not talked about very much, but I mean... You know, it, the country is now engaged in an unprecedented war um, in the south, um, where you know it, it's winning to a certain extent, but it's also alienating millions of millions of people, probably forever, um, who share a border with Saudi Arabia and will probably do everything they can to get back at Saudi Arabia at some point. At the same time, um, I mean, there are all these crises in the region, um, in the, including in the future financial troubles. Um, and so I think I'm not sure what I would do or I'm sure what I would do I'm not sure that would ensure the survival of the monarchy okay, someone's right I, I set Toby a challenge at the beginning of the lecture which was to convince you all to buy the book and uh, if I've been listening closely enough there aren't enough books for everyone here so it's first come first serve but I think we need to it's, it's been a, a hot and stuffy room but I think through, through detail and excellence and, and, and a, a very uh, powerful rendition of what he's been doing, I think he's kept us mesmerized. So we have to thank him and buy his book. <laughs>